Okay, let's do this photo. Godzilla and Lincoln. It's a movie no one will let me make. They're either too afraid. Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 149. Today, we're talking about Martin Scorsese's actually very recent film, Silence, which was a passion project of his that took about 25 years, I want to say, 25 to 27 years to make. And it was based on a Japanese novel by Shushako Endo, a Japanese Catholic, about two Catholic Portuguese missionaries in the uh, 16th century or 17th century who go to Japan because they've heard their hero has apostatized, which means basically he's renounced his faith and stepped on the cross in the dirt. And this goes against everything they believe in terms of their evangelical work of getting the word of God out to everybody in the world. And Scorsese finally made that movie with Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver and Liam Neeson, amazing cast. So he got to make his passion projects. Many passion projects never get to be made. And so we're talking about silence and then just the passion project, good and bad. Who is with us today? Uh, What's up? It's Daniel. Special guest. That's me. I'm AJ. Adrian Germain Greer. Yeah. Legally, yes. It's my legal name. Thank you. Sorry, did I divulge too much info? That's all right. I'm Craig Herbert Hamill. Uh, Hey, gamers. It's me, Connell Creese, the people's champion. Uh, Here with a guy who I uh, wish would take his little step from the god in this movie and shut up a little bit sometimes. It's Evan Gomez. (laughs) Hello, America. You know, Lord's been trying to take me out every day, but yet he lets me live because I avoid him. I'm still alive. I'm still here. So... Take that, America. I think the transcendent in the universe has a plan for you. And I live in like equal amounts expectation and mortal fear of what that plan is. God might be an insoppable force, Craig, but Edwin is an immovable Immovable object. Immovable object. Oh, (laughs) let me be honest. When in the conversation with about Edwin, God's going to sit this one out. And I'm I'm Craig, (laughs) founder, programmer, Secret Movie Club. This week, when you hear this, we are going to be setting up in Palm Springs for our 70 millimeter uh, weekend. Number two. I can't believe we got to number two. Hey, and you hear this because Connor usually post these late Thursday night, early Friday morning, and you're like, F it, spontaneity left my life, and I want to reintroduce it, because that's going to just open up a whole way of thinking that I had shut myself off to, and I want to wake up to the world again, get in your car, if you're in Southern California, or wherever, within two hours, three hours, drive to Palm Springs. Tonight, we are doing Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master on 70 millimeter. I talk about Hitchcock's Hitchcock, which was Shadow of the Doubt. Shadow of a Doubt is Hitchcock's favorite movie of everything he's done. I think still to this day, Paul Thomas Anderson's Paul Thomas Anderson is The Master. To him, that's the height of what he's accomplished is uh, the master. Interestingly, we can discuss that uh, when we do our Palm Springs podcast. Saturday night, if you're looking for something a little more mainstream, enjoyable, take you back to that feeling of when you were a kid hugging someone, hopefully consensually as the wind beat at your brow and the world was ahead of you. Uh, Titanic, James Cameron's Titanic on 70. And then uh, Sunday, and actually our biggest seller, probably no surprise, uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 all on 70 millimeter, all in Palm Springs. And Saturday night, we're doing a uh, after party at the Ace Hotel. We'd love to have you. Next week, Connor Lloyd Cruz's birthday picks. The Wicker Man, the final cut. See it, hear it all. And Ari Aster's uh, Midsommar. Thursday, we are doing another Hitchcock-based screening. This time, we're showing Henri-Georges Clouseau's The Wages of Fear, which William Friedkin later remade as Sorcerer, but Henri-Georges Clouseau, who was a contemporary of Hitchcock's, although he came a little later, 40s and 50s, whereas Hitchcock started in the 20s. It's not right to call Clouseau the French Hitchcock. That's demeaning. But he is a master of suspense, and it's a different kind of suspense. And I love The Wages of Fear. I think it's incredible, all about these sort of down-and-out guys in South America who take on this suicide mission for a lot of money to drive TNT through the rainforest. And if they're able to do it, they get a lot of money. And of course, everything goes wrong and the the trucks could explode in any minute. It is amazing. And Edwin has his hands up. When are you going to get your act together, Craig? When are you going to be a real man and show Sorcerer, the real movie, Craig? I was going to say that, but no, yeah. I was going to mention, can I bring the, po- if, if I find a poster of Sorcerer, can I put it up? Sure. Can you do your best impression of William Freakin, Edwin? No, because I hate the man. Why? Because he hates, he hates film. So Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Remember, Bellatar's Satan Tango is coming up seven and a half hours. I will have you know, it looks like it may sell out. I am so happy when that happens. Maybe, maybe not, but we're getting to about 50%. We still got a month to go. I can't believe that. Get tickets at Eventbrite. All right, moving on. 
The story goes that when Scorsese made Last Temptation of Christ, an Anglican or Episcopalian, a, a Protestant bishop uh, who liked his movie, who liked Last Temptation, said, you know, you've made a great movie, but there's a book that goes even deeper into what you're trying to get at with your faith. And Scorsese was like, what is it? And he says, read this. It's Shusako Endo's book, Silence. Shusako Endo was a famous Japanese novelist who was one of the rare Japanese Catholics in the 20th century. He wrote the book in like 67, 68. I read it and I love the book. And the movie is a fairly faithful adaptation of the book, although it's definitely has Scorsese in it as well. We'll get into it. But the book and the movie deal with the contradiction of two Portuguese missionaries come to Middle Ages Japan, or Renaissance Japan, basically feudal Japan. And they truly believe in their mission. Basically, they're all of these Catholics in Japan that have been converted. But the government in Japan thinks that Catholicism is just a secret way of Europe smuggling in Western ideas and their imperialism. And it's very understandable from the government's point of view. They want nothing to do with it. And so they originally crucify the Catholics, but that just makes them martyrs, which I don't think anyone's a Catholic here but me. Edwin's a lapsed Catholic. But the worst thing you can do to a Catholic is make them a martyr because that's like almost every Catholic's secret desire is to be martyred. So it, it just grows Catholicism. So then the Japanese government gets really smart and they go, no, 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 don't crucify them. Make them spit on the cross, make them step on their statues and their crosses, and that'll dishearten everybody. And so the Portuguese missionaries hear that their hero, Father Rodriguez, has apostatized, and they can't believe it. So it's kind of an apocalypse now where they go into Japan to administer the faith and find out what happened to Father Rodriguez. But it's a very blasphemous movie, a fascinating movie, and just like Last Temptation of Christ, it comes at ideas of spiritual belief and faith and God in a surprising and non-traditional way. And uh, Scorsese eventually got to make it about 30 years later. He shot it in Taiwan with uh, Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield and Liam Neeson in the main roles. And that was his passion project. And he got to make it. Edwin, go first, then I'll go. You, you, you'll get your laps Catholic and practicing Catholic. Yeah, well, um, as, as many people have known when you, you've been listening to this podcast, I'm not a religious man. You know, I've, uh, I spiked the man upstairs a lot of time while riding a scooter and occasionally high on marijuana. Uh, I, I say a lot of things, but I do like religious movies, though. Don't get me wrong. The, you know, I, I, I like them. There's like a few of them I love, like uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told. I love that one a lot. Uh, also, uh, Last Temptation of Christ, of course. But Silence, on the other hand, is probably the most heartbreaking and yet beautiful and most effed up movie I've ever seen. It's it's a pretty long movie, and and. In the time, you feel it. For sure, near three hours. When I saw it, I was like blown away by like, holy crap, this is sad. Andrew Garfield is like fighting his all, you know, to, to keep his fate, you know, not not to break until like the final moment where he does break. And he just, he just collapses and just gives in because he, he takes in all this pain and suffering torture. And um, next thing you know, um, by the end of the movie, uh, a spoiler. Yeah, no, we, we got to do spoilers. So it, it, Secret Movie Club audience, if you don't want to know, then turn off, watch the movie, come back. Where he's like an old man. He dies and uh, they disintegrate his body. But the, when, the, when the camera like goes in for a close-up and it, and it fades into to, to him, he has a cross right there with him. And I guess he kind of like never forgot his fate. He just like kept it in all this time but i think i think it's a beautiful movie uh also i kind of wish liam neeson wasn't in it because he's like miscasted i almost wish he would have cast de niro de niro would have been a lot better or or harvey keitel either one of those two would have been a perfect choice for that part liam neeson it just i don't know it just takes it out for me in that movie for whatever it's worth ed when uh silence famously uh, came together and fell apart a number of times over the 30 years and the cast that was supposed to go about five years before, I don't know when, was going to be Daniel Day-Lewis in the oh, recent role. And then it was going to be Benicio Del Toro and Gael Garcia Bernal. Gael was going to be Andrew Garfield. Benicio was going to be Adam Driver. Daniel Day was going to be Liam Neeson. And then that fell apart. They, they kind of in this do the old movie thing or it's just like, 
Uh, they're Portuguese. They're speaking English. <laughs> they're speaking English, but it's it's Portuguese, you know, which I'm actually okay with because it's like whatever. Well, yeah. I mean, like, what are you gonna do? They need the scene like Hunt for Red October where they're speaking in like Russian, and then it just becomes English, and then they're like, "That's that." Now it's Russian, but it's English. I think so. I I'm a big fan of silence. Uh, what do you think about the movie? Oh yeah, I'm gonna. T- <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pumped. Uh, <laughs> Connor's back. I think Scorsese's been on a run since Wolf of Wall Street, frankly. I think Wolf is great, although the ending kind of peters, but I love Wolf. But then I think that Silence and Irishman are like top shelf Scorsese, and I can't wait to see uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. I will say it's hard because people really need to see the movie. It's hard to communicate your feelings about this film. I think concisely or it's hard for me. Watching it again recently when we screened it, I actually had an epiphany I didn't have before which is, as Edwin referenced, the final shot of the movie, for everybody who doesn't know and hear spoiler territory, ultimately Andrew Garfield's character struggles not only with what's going on in Japan, but with his very faith, because he prays and he never hears God. And that's why the movie's called Silence. So there are these lines along the film where he's like, am I praying to anything or am I just praying to silence? Basically, is the thing I've devoted my life to, my belief system, nonsense, essentially. I think a question everybody asks in one way or another, no matter where they fall philosophically or, or spiritually, if they're trying to really you know, deal with what they believe in life. And ultimately... He does hear God's voice in the movie, and he hears God's voice, Jesus's voice specifically, right when he apostatizes. And Jesus uh, basically says, step on me. I'm here to be stepped on. That's why I'm here. I'm here to suffer with you. And when he steps on it, he actually frees these five Japanese who are being tortured. And he has this realization that real Christianity would be releasing these people from their pain, not making them suffer because of his pride in himself and his ego and not wanting to step on the cross and that that's true faith, true Christianity. And then he hears God's voice again, actually saying, I never left you. I was with you the entire time. I'm here to suffer with you and to suffer with everybody. And that I find very profound. And he has a line that's like, the silence was me being with you. Yes, the silence was me being with you through your hardship, right? There's a beautiful scene early in the movie where three Japanese villagers refuse to apostatize and they're crucified in the ocean. Uh, One of them prior to dying gives Andrew Garfield's character this little cross that he's made. And that's the thing that Andrew Garfield has in his hands at the end of the movie. And what I realized, the epiphany I had is I always thought that that last shot where Andrew Garfield continues to live in Japan and says that he's apostatized, but you realize he never really lost his faith. I thought that was the point of it. But actually, I think it's even deeper than that. And I think Scorsese achieves kind of a Kubrickian level of spiritual idea, which is that I think Andrew Garfield has the realization that the faith, whatever faith is, however you have faith, that they made that cross despite everything that would have been easier to apostatize, and they gave it to him, that he had an epiphany of the importance of faith, how meaningful and the importance of faith is in existence, even when you have doubt, or that doubt and faith can go together, but that there's real worth and value to faith. And it's not just, I think, people being like, oh, you've been duped by religion. My wife has said something. My wife is Salvadorian. She's from El Salvador. She was born in the Civil War. One of her first memories was her dad saying, get under the bed, they're bombing us. And the rebels and the government were fighting in her town, and they were bombing really near them. And Martha often tells me, like, She says, atheism is a luxury of the first world. And she often says that, and she's bemused by atheists, which is not to demean atheists, but she said, atheism is something that you can have when you're well off. And she said that people don't understand that when you're suffering and you have nothing, having your faith, having God, that's the thing you have. And when somebody comes to you and says, well, you're an idiot for that, or it's the opiate of the masses, as Mao said, it's not Christianity or Judaism or Islam or Hinduism. There's something that a spiritual level, no one can take that from you. No one can take that from you. If you're in a jail cell or you're beaten or no one can take your faith from you. And it was something that really made a deep impression on me when I started to date Marta. Um, thankfully, I did, my faith had kind of come back to me before that. But, And I guess the last thing I just want to say, though, because I don't want to be misunderstood and this is important. I have respect for all viewpoints. I think the universe and the mystery 
is way bigger than human beings. I mean, human beings are motes upon motes upon motes upon motes of dust. And the great mystery is way bigger. I've, always, I've said this a lot, but I feel that everybody has a bit of the puzzle piece. So I actually have tremendous respect for atheism. I want to be very clear about that. Half my family are atheists. I have tremendous respect for agnostics. And I have tremendous respect for people who are like, hey, I don't know. <laughs> and so I'm not judging or anything. I have a faith. I do have faith. And I do believe in God, but it was a long journey to get there. And I think silence is about that journey. So maybe there, Craig. And that's it. Thanks for the pod. Guys, <laughs> great to have y'all. I don't know. I, I mean, it, for me, it's all kind of the same. I guess I am leaning more towards like the atheist or more, more agnostic. I guess I'm more personally agnostic where it's like, okay, Astra, there's something out there. I'm not going to try to comprehend it with my meager mind. Total, but maybe the only rationally defensible position, by the way. You can't view three dimensions in a two-dimensional plane. So I can't try to wrap my head around it, you know? Like if you think of a of a circle or like like a like a donut skew on a two-dimensional plane, it's going to be two different dots. But if you think of it if you see it in three dimensions, you see that the, it's not two different dots, it's actually a circle that just appears in two different places within that lower plane. So I can't and I put myself in that where it's like I, there's obviously something that I can't comprehend. So something can be everything and nothing at the same time. All movies are a religious experience, personally, just because it's always somebody's story. Somebody's telling a story. You know, half my family's Jewish, and I do identify Jewish. I always get worried because when it comes to spirituality, I'm often talking the uh, vocabulary of Catholicism. But first off, I think it's all the same thing. Like you said that, AJ, I believe this. I think it's just different paths up the same mountain. So Islam, Hinduism, Baha'i, Sufi, you know, Native American, I think it's all the same. But the second thing is Jack Black's an atheist. And he said for him, he gets that spiritual feeling from art. And I have heard a lot of people who aren't religious or spiritual say that's why they go to the movies. That's why they go to a museum. That's why they listen to music. They get a transcendent experience from art. And I think that's a fascinating thing to think about, too. Silence is up there. I don't know if I would say it's my favorite, but it might be Scorsese picture. And I hadn't come back to it in a while because it's not a casual. It was very, I, watched it, I watched it yesterday and it's very funny to put it on in the middle of the day and just be like, I'm going to sit down and watch Silence on Monday. I watched most of it at like 2 a.m. the other week to be total disclosure. And then I had to finish it the next morning. Rachel kept walking in and she would see like, oh, Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield. And she'd be like, and then she would hear like screaming and be like, oh, I don't think I want to watch that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I come from a very religious background and I have my own struggles with faith and my ideas behind it. But I think the concept of faith, which I think silence is a reflection on faith, a lifetime of it and our relationship to it. And I think that extends beyond religion, that it's both faith tied to your concept of religion, whether you have that or not. I guess there's an energy to the, the idea of faith and what that means to you, if it's a higher power or if it's just your sense of self in the world, in the universe. And I think that's really important. And it's sort of maybe a more universal thing. But I think the way it speaks to it and the way it uses it, there's so much restraint and silence Scorsese is someone who is famous for his style to a degree, and he he jumps genres and he is this master craftsman. And this is just an example of, of him completely understanding how this has to work that I think 25 years ago, if he had made it, would not have been the case, maybe. There's like a maturity to it. Not that his work is immature, but there's something that him being pushing 80 and making a movie about his relationship to faith, because all of his work has ties to faith, whether it's overt or not. I would say he has a tie to his struggles in relationship to his Catholicism. And I think what he does with this is so interesting because the length and the way that we ruminate in it, and it's just an exhausting movie and not in a negative way, in a way that you, it has to be to let it work the way it needs to work because it just takes its time. It doesn't feel like time wasted. It feels like this very intentional way to, to wear you down in the way that, that the um, Jesuits were being weared down. It, its greatest success to me is that it works beyond. I think the religion is, I don't know how to phrase this the right way, but it's, it's the least important thing. Their beliefs are not the most important thing to the audience. It's the way that they choose to embrace them, if that makes any sort of sense. That's a tough balance as a film that is looked at as a religious piece. It's so much more layered than that surface thing. And I think that's an important distinction because I agree with you. I think ultimately the movie's about faith. It's not about Christianity or Catholic faith per se. And I actually think that the movie does this other thing we haven't talked about yet, which is make the very, and the book does the same thing, but the movie embraces it. The very fascinating point that you can't separate ideology 
Christianity or Catholicism with the nationalities bringing it. And that Christianity and Catholicism also represent violence and subjugation and the demeaning of indigenous cultures all over the world. Colonialism. And the Japanese were having none of it. They were like, no. Well, and it ties in their faith, their religion with Buddhism, at least it's spoken at this time period, as being important enough to them that it has to stop this way. And the biggest takeaway this time, firstly, Andrew Garfield, Adam Driver, chef's kiss, since this isn't a video, <laughs> Mamma Mia. It's really interesting to me to watch this, this year after the last few years, and this concept of your faith and the idea of a country, a nationality's religion, or their idea of a religion as it's supposed to be for the country you inhabit versus personal faith, and sort of where we've been the last few years as a people and the way that specifically for us, like we had a government targeting concepts based on religion. Well, that's not this. It made this experience rewatching it extra demoralizing to some degree. I think I, I find it also beautiful, but that this is from, you know, the 1700s, 1800s. This concept that feels fake, it almost feels fantastical. It's this fantasy thing. There's no technology that we recognize. This feels out of the past from a history book. And yet you could make silence in... 2020 with a different subset of people and it's it's not a different story it's just a different methodology and the torture is different you could make that movie about americans in afghanistan or iraq you, you could make a movie where the americans try to bring this american system to a tribal culture that no colonial power has ever been able to figure out or should really because that's not how afghanistan works and Afghanistan rejects every single colonial culture that tries to come in there. And it's the idea of like, there is no definitive right to anyone. There's sort of this concept of like, we all have our opinions and our beliefs, but at the end of the day, there's, I think it's sort of human nature of the double down that if you commit your whole life to a belief and someone says, no, you're wrong. How do you comprehend that mentally? So you double down that, no, actually I'm right. And then you look to anything that aligns with you. It's like the negative of the bubble. There's no interest in it, the education of it. And so I think that silence and the way it uses that for people that are fighting that concept for themselves, because I think to a degree, the double down becomes this internal thing for Andrew Garfield's character of how he's making his decisions. And so when he finally hears from God at, at the point when he does to make the decision that no, that's, you know, they're suffering, I think it's really fascinating because I do think it's uh, specifically speaking to faith is such a personal thing. And your relationship to it is does not have to be something that is spoken externally. I don't know if, if anyone else had this, but I grew up in the church and I remember going to bed and I would pray and I would get this thought in my head and it would, the thought would be like, I hate Jesus. And it was just like a thought that I have to be like, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean, I don't mean that, but like it's in my head. And I thought that was like a test. And it was just me being <laughs> a weird 12 year old. But like that messes you up to think that way. And so I think there's, there's so much silence. You could go on for hours. It wouldn't be a surprise that you would have that. When you're talking about language, Daniel, I want you to say, hey, you're reading this completely wrong. But if your 12-year-old brain is saying, I hate Jesus, it may be, hey, I need to become an independent thinker and an independent person, and I'm having this stuff shoved down my throat, and I'm not getting any room to discover my own belief system. And when you're saying, I hate Jesus, it has nothing to do with the historical Jesus whatsoever. It, it might, the language, the translation is, I hate this fundamental, like, you have to believe this or whatever, and I need to break out of this and break it and start again. Well, it's not even a thought I'm having that's accurate to how I was feeling. It was more of like this panic response to, you can't do that. And so in my brain, it sort of sets in of like, well, you're going to think about it, though. It's the same way, like... Like you're not going to steal, but sometimes, you know, as a kid, if you're at a supermarket and you see like a box of Tic Tacs that you can't have in your brain, you might be like, I just put that in my pocket. You're not, maybe you don't actually do it. I'd hope you don't. I did once. I had to return it. It was very embarrassing. I, I shoplifted a few times, had to do the same thing. <laughs> that concept that just the intrusive thoughts that are not, they don't align with you, but they exist there because you're like in a panic of like the fear of it all. I, I should have gone earlier. I don't want to get into a whole philosophical thing. I think like a lot of Scorsese movies, I really liked it and admired it. I didn't quite like totally love it. I think there is that disconnect as being like a non-religious person. It was weird though. At the same time, I was sort of in my head like, would my parents like this? And I was like, they would like the messaging for sure. You know, there's certain things that like as a non-religious person where I'm just like, there's a lot of suffering in this that is generated from Christianity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if religion is supposed to be a way to escape suffering, there's a lot of it that's caused by 
religion as opposed to as a, as a relief from it. I think the drama is great for sure. You, you started this off by saying you don't want to get into a whole philosophical thing, but did you have a philosophical, it was the philosophical issue, the truth that Christianity has been the generator of suffering? I don't really even care about that. I think it was more, more like in this specific instance. I'm not religious. I also don't drink coffee. And so I assume that if somebody's drinking one type of coffee and it's really like hurting them to drink that type of coffee, they should just try a different type of coffee. And there, there's like part of me in this movie where I was like, well, these people should just be Buddhist. They should just be Buddhist. Like <laughs> it would be, and it'd be fine. <laughs> it's more like a narrative thing. You know what I mean? Like it has nothing to do with the actual faith of the characters. And, and it is one of those things where because as a non-religious person, I sort of don't just accept the idea that it's real because the reality of faith in this movie it's not as real as in like the last temptation of Christ where it's like, obviously the supernatural and religious is real. The only thing in this movie that even confirms that the religious is real is this internal voice, which is actually could just be Andrew Garfield's internal voice. Especially I think it's worth noting that it's Sieran Hines who plays a, pasture towards the beginning of the movie does the voice that he hears i think it's an intentional thing where it could be read either way and it's more about the personal epiphany that he's having and i find that profound for sure and the use of sound in some of those sequences is really good and the way that he will going with the title just completely cut out all the sound in a, in a few moments but yeah no I, I think overall i really liked it i would love to visit it again in the future the thing i think is tough especially when it comes to your philosophical, and I think we've even discussed this before, when it comes to philosophical feelings about the world, is that something happens to a lot of folks in their 20s, 30s, 40s, where you sort of decide who you are, who your tribes are, and you sort of say, I'm a Democrat, and I'm a agnostic or an atheist, or I'm a this or I'm a that, and this is my tribe, and I'm a movie lover, and I'm a bup, bup, bup. And then to ask of people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s to question that rigorously and go, well, could you be wrong? Could you be wrong in your political affiliation? Could you be wrong in your philosophical affiliation? To continue that journey of honest interrogation, I think is a lot to ask of people because so much comfort comes from feeling you have come to conclusions that are right for you. And it's super unsettling to like rip all that up and then suddenly reinvestigate all of it. And I think a lot of people consciously or unconsciously are just hesitant just because of aging to say like, I'm gonna continue to like rigorously interrogate this. And for me, and I'm only, you know, obviously I can only speak for me. My big fear is that I don't continue to rigorously interrogate things as I get scared about them. Because on some level, I would hope that I would continue on a journey of truth, you know, and I know that's a loaded word, but I believe in it. And that means having to always have some doubt. And Scorsese brings up this point, and it's actually a Jesuit, for people who don't know the Jesuits, and it's a very Jesuit movie. It is a cornerstone. One of the things that a lot of people say is actually, your faith doesn't mean anything if you don't have doubt. Your faith doesn't mean anything if you're not putting it up to, well, wait, and then somehow retaining it or it evolves or it changes. Isn't that kind of how faith is defined? I think it's a dance with doubt. The thing is that faith and doubt are like complementary colors in a way. And I can tell you in my own life, that's what happened. I, I was raised a certain way, became a vehement atheist for a few years, and then had this epiphany at 15, 16. I've told the story, I'll tell it another time. But now my, my big fear, and I'm just putting out my fear, is that I won't continue that journey of the dance of faith and doubt and interrogation of the universe. And I respect Scorsese because I think he's always tried to be on that journey. And it, it is kind of a dynamic, fluid journey. I will say this, this is a good transition because it's a joke <laughs> and it, it, it pick, picks us up. As a non-religious person, I do think Catholicism out of the Judeo-Christian Western religions, definitely the coolest and most metal. So <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> Thank you, dude. Word. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> and my soon-to-be-four Irish Catholic children. I'll play that for them. There's a lot of horror imagery that uh, comes from Catholicism. Uh, it's, it, that's a whole thing. We'll get into it another time. I don't think it's any better than anything else. It's just poetry in my native tongue. It's pretty rad, though. 
interestingly, not many people get to make their passion projects or when they do, they get derided for them. Right now, uh, we've had some conversations on a pod that's going to follow this one about Ari Aster just dropped Bo is Afraid. That was a passion project. Damien Chazelle dropped Babylon at the end of last year, passion project. Both of them are very, very divisive. Uh, oftentimes, passion projects are <laughs> met with resounding, oh, didn't like it or didn't work as often as or more so than, oh, wow, I'm so glad he he or she stuck to their guns and finally made that. Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, which I'm a big fan of, sort of divides folks. So I'm going to do uh, Steven Spielberg's AI and his uh, The Fablements. But AI was originally Kubrick, so I guess it's Kubrick's passion project because he wanted to make that movie for years. By the time uh, he was doing – what's that dumb – sex movie he did eyes wide shut eyes there wide shut yeah hate that movie he was doing pre-production on ai and then he was getting like casting up for that he got ron williams a uh Mer meryl streep is meryl streep in ai i'm gonna say she is ben kingsley there are a lot of people who do voices and stuff for ai for sure yeah julia ormond chris rock is she the kid no she's the the fairy i think it was kubrick's movie he wanted to do that for years until he passed away and uh, i guess he gave it to steven spielberg to like yeah you make this and then boom he died it's not kubrick but you know it's, it's a good spielberg movie that that should have been made by kubrick instead but you know can't have it all and also the fablemans is also another one that's probably the best thing he's ever done in a very 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 long time telling his story you know how he came from uh you know this kind of like almost messed up family to finding his true passion and, and films and, and meeting his hero john ford who was played by the great david lynch so great to see david lynch back on the big screen again which is incredible almost the fablemans was a manifestation of an audience passion project which is that for spielberg's whole career we really wanted to know what went on in his family because we all knew that that divorce really was the catalyst for everything that he did and he hinted at it in movies yeah because it's, it's in every single one of his movies i, I think the first one i want to say sugarland express in there just a little bit oh yeah totally broken family yeah exactly and exploited more in close encounters et last crusade catch me if you can i, I think last crusade is like the biggest one out of all that until he finally just said no i'm, I'm gonna turn that into a whole feature film and also i also call it his jewish heritage uh, trilogy with schindler's list uh, munich and fablemans another trilogy he did he always does these weird unofficial trilogies which is amazing to me when i think of passion projects i think it's like there's two people that kind of come to mind and it's the fact that they get to do their passion projects on a much grander scale than just say one movie the first one i think well i think of this christopher nolan i feel like he's never not done a passion project like, I feel like all of his movies are, like, things that he is very passionate about. Actually, his last couple is, like, post-Dark Knight run. Okay, with the exception of The Dark Knight. But even kind of with that, it lends itself to a passion project, whereas it was his interpretation of Batman in that world. But I don't think, I can't think of anything that he's done where it's just like, oh, yeah, he's just making another film. They're always, and it might just be his approach to filmmaking that makes it a passion project. But I don't. I can't think of anything where it's just like, oh yeah, this is just Crystal isn't cash grab. I'm really looking forward to Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah, that's gonna be that's a whole other thing. <laughs> that's gonna be amazing. The other director I think of is James Cameron in Avatar. Like, that is the biggest, most expensive experimental filmmaking ever. Just in the scale of what he's doing and what needs to get done and what like just the scope of the filmmaking process for him. And it is very much like a passion project. And I, don't, I can't think of anything that's on that grand of a scale. Avatar is a great call because I've really been wrestling with why would somebody commit themselves <laughs> to making four sequels to a thing? Because my mind would be, well, don't you want to do this kind of movie? And don't you want to do that kind of movie? And the only answer I can come up with, and maybe Cameron has spoken to it and someone can talk to it is, I'm getting from what I can glean from what Avatar 3 is going to be, is it looks like each movie is an element. Avatar 1 was Earth. Avatar 2 was water. I know Avatar 3, I think, is fire. I think Jim is really horny for those cat people also. <laughs> Word. I wonder if it's this idea of, I am going to so build out a world that I'm, like, literally he's playing God beyond what any other director ever, like, I am literally creating a universe. And this universe will be so encompassing and immersive at the end of five movies 
that I will have actually made this summation statement about saving the earth. I I, that, I don't know. That's the that's as far as I can get. His Lord of the Rings, Dark Tower, yeah, there magnum you go. opus exactly, sort of yeah. thing. I don't know if he was developing it for years and years. I failed to look into the backstory on this, but I know while making it, Peter Jackson with Lord of the Rings was dearly devoted to those films and there's all those stories about how you know the producers would be like yeah you gotta do this you gotta do this you gotta do this and he was just like listen i'm gonna do it my way and then we'll talk about it later (laughs) that's kind of a a cute way to sum it up and a lot of my favorite like quote unquote good bad favorite movies are essentially passion projects um a lot of the quintessential ones that you hear about you know your your tommy wiseau's i think wiseau's lost the spark to be honest personally (laughs) i think he got ate up by the hollywood machine so to speak but uh you could definitely tell in the room that he is he's very passionate everyone betray him and people needed to know that and it's like auteur theory the idea of like the filmmaker as author of a film and how that cuts in all directions, good and bad. And it's the same thing with like passion projects where there's the good parts of that and then there's the bad parts of that. You know, because an example for whatever it's worth, another Scorsese passion project that actually is gaining in appreciation, including with me over time, but is still flawed is Gangs of New York, which he had wanted to make for 20 years. And when Harvey Weinstein and Miramax finally said, we'll give you the budget. Scorsese was fighting Weinstein the whole time. And to get that money had to make some concessions. And what's interesting about gangs is I think ultimately gangs does work. And I think it is interesting, but you can feel that it's a passion project where to get the money, Scorsese had to fight so many fights that the final product, you're kind of like, I wonder where Scorsese ends and Weinstein begins in this thing. My last thought was just about thinking about my own, because I have a lot of ideas for different pieces of filmed art, whether they be shows or movies. But I have, like, there's a handful that are, like, extra special and precious to me. There's some where it's like, oh, that would be really cool. I think this is a good idea. And, like, I should pursue it. And then there's some where it's like, oh, this is, like, an obsession. Like, I really want to do this. And I don't think we want to go too deep into that just because, you know, nobody wants to talk about their stuff in case somebody scoops them. <laughs> but, yeah, I was just I was thinking about that last night. Your Paris Hilton biopic. Yeah, my Paris Hilton biopic. I mean, my big thing, I'll, I'll say this. I won't say the exactly specifics of it, but I would love to make my version of Batman at some point in my life would be a dream you may get that chance that ip is always coming back yeah i know i have a lot of ideas i've been stewing with them since i was like uh i don't know this is like 18 something like that there you go you heard it first warner brothers call me james James <laughs> I'm sort of a often a sucker for them i love when someone just gets to do what they want to do whether it's a fail or or not. The most fun thing to me is when they sort of come back and people are like, wait, actually, because I feel like you get stuff like Southland Tales and stuff that are like received one way on. I mean, I guess that's sort of like the cult movie mentality, but when it's tied to like a passionate thing, Speed Racer by the Wachowskis is like the number one thing I think about is like something that was considered a failure, both financially and like critically. And now it sells out every screening that's done of it because it's like this sort of accidental ahead of its time thing. I think the Wachowskis have a few of those in terms of people seeing stuff and then coming back and being like, oh, you all were just ahead of the curve. Isn't Cloud Atlas getting that reappraisal too? I think so. And Jupiter Ascending to a, a level oh, really? has like some reappraisal. Yeah. That one's still, I think, going to end up being the black sheep overall, Jupiter Ascending. Yeah, probably. <laughs> haven't seen it, by the way. I don't want anyone to surmise. I, I haven't seen that one. Or Cloud Atlas. I love Speed Racer. There was a Disney movie I loved growing up that was like, I think, a bomb and pretty poorly received. It's now sort of come back, which was Treasure Planet, which was a passion project of its directors that I think holds up pretty great. I mean, you have like Peter Jackson's King Kong, which he made on the heels of Lord of the Rings that I still think is pretty dang good, but was pretty divisive. And I think Serious Man, I sort of consider a passion project for the Coens. I feel like a lot of these passion things seem to come off of like an Oscar win or some heat with that where they do what you want to do and then they do what they want to do. And people are like, well, I don't know if we meant that. That's like Spielberg's, a lot of Spielberg's career is, you know, he'll do Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year because, you know, one allowed him to do the other even though schindler's list because it was so well received helped him fuel even further but don't like temple of doom and then suddenly color purple you can tell he probably was like okay there's temple uh <laughs> i better do uh yeah yeah 
Well, I feel that way about Lust Caution after Ang Lee won for Brokeback. I think about like after Million Dollar Baby, uh, Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima as both just like very radical departures that are super interesting and not like the traditional things you'd expect. And I was a big in Josh Oakley as well. I was a Babylon. I really liked Babylon, gotta be honest. Yeah, we had a Babylon aficionado at Trivia Night last night. I think it'll get some love going forward. In my research, I found the singularity that if you want to get your passion project that's got you know, 20 plus years on it, you bring in Adam Driver. Silence, <laughs> the Don Quixote movie with Gilliam, and now Megapolis with Coppola. So I don't know if it's a secret. You bring in Driver and it's done. And 65. And 65. My passion project. Would white noise count as that? And that too? Ooh, that's a good question. I'd say. That feels like a, a pretty big departure type of passion project, funded and unmonitored by a streaming company. Driver, I really admire his career choices. If someone were to ask me, who's a working actor today you really, really admire, who's sort of at the peak, not just saying, oh, you know, I love De Niro. Even though De Niro is going to do Killers of Flower Moon, I can't wait. But Driver, you know, for being a guy in his late 30s, early 40s, kind of the go-to guy, I'm always like, wow, he really gets behind things. Like, he'll be like, okay, what's your vision you know silence or or any other megaopolis or anything yeah i'm i'm excited that there's rumors that he's in final talks to be mr fantastic and fantastic four i think he'd be really good actually i think he's gonna kill it and he's the lead of uh, michael mann's ferrari which is one of his passion projects and side note side note he is hilarious on snl and i don't know if anyone saw that there will be blood high school sketch where he's pete davidson's dad but he's like daniel plainview <laughs> And he just comes into his high school class and he's just talking about his philosophy. And Adam Driver commits to the sketch like he's making There Will Be Blood. And I was like, whoa. A passion project I actually think turned out great is John Huston's The Man Who Would Be King, which I will show. John Huston tried to get that movie made in the early 50s with Clark Gable and Humphrey Bogart. No one would make it based on a Rudyard Kipling book. It took him 22 years, I think, basically, to finally get it made. And when he finally got it made, he got Michael Caine and Sean Connery and Christopher Plummer in the Rudyard Kipling role. And it is so John Huston and so great. And he hasn't lost a step. In fact, I basically peg the man who would be king as the beginning of the John Houston resurgence uh, towards the end of his career where suddenly he was making bangers again after sort of like some missteps in the 60s. So if anyone's not seen the man who would be king, it is Houston through and through, including a very dark ending that makes you laugh. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> oh boy. And that's Houston. Like when Houston gets that, it, his weird dark joy, irony, it's great. Guys, pop culture final thoughts. There's a manga that I'm reading called Gleipner that I just, that's really fun and interesting. It's kind of etchy, if you know what that term is in anime. It's kind of like, it's very like sexy, like, but not super like hentai sexy. It's just kind of, you know, it's kind of close there. It's very hinting. That was good. Also read a graphic novel by the name of Nice House on the Lake, which is phenomenal. I can't really talk about it without giving anything away, but it's, it's just... a dynamite title. I'm actually going to write it down. It's really, really good. Well, I'm not excited for Palm Springs, mainly for Master. So they just, that's right off the bat, but I got the poster for that. It's been super busy you now. Oh yeah. I forgot. Uh, I did TCM at the Hollywood Legion, which uh, really, really, really kicked ass. I had a hell of a time. Got to meet some celebrities. Got to meet, uh, what's that, Mankiewicz guy, Bob Mankiewicz? Oh, yeah, Ben. Got to see Ben Mankiewicz in the flesh. I didn't talk to him, but he went on the stage. And I also saw Louis Gutt Jr., the RZA. I saw a lot of great movies. One of them was in uh, black and white, silent film called uh, Clash of the Wolves with Rin Tin Tin on 35. It was great. Played by live uh, pianist. Um, there's one movie I didn't like. was Carmen Jones. Did not like Carmen Jones at all. Very toxic. But I did like the other 1950s they showed, which is called Peyton Place. That is technically the basis for Twin Peaks. I like Peyton Place a lot. Russ Hamblin is like... Top notch, you know, great, great picture. Well, that was really trippy right there. Connor walked off screen to get something and it looked like you walked into the mountains in the sky, Connor, and then reappeared. I did. I did. Was Edwin done prattling? Um, I was going to say that uh, me and Daniel, we saw uh, Evil Dead Rise, the premiere. Uh, I, I watched it a couple more times, actually, this last week. And um, But when we when we went there at the Arrow Theater, we ran in, and I'm not going to name them in case they don't want to be identified uh, publicly. Uh, we ran into some other rep theater people. And at some point, and Daniel can verify this, you came up in the conversation, and one of them went, oh, 
that guy who hates movies. <laughs> what? <laughs> Daniel can verify that that yeah that the verbatim. One quote. of them was a podcast listener, and he was like, "Oh, he's the guy on the podcast that hates all the movies." I think he might have even been talking about like. Oh in- no, you're right. It was just in line for stuff. He was like, "I always hear him shitting on movies." <laughs> yeah. In line. <laughs> Your reputation grows, Edwin. So, Edwin, so see, what, what that tells you, you got to spend a little more time on the love and a little less time on the hate. Yeah, but you saw sh- movies, though, Craig. It had nothing to do with Craig. It was about the general state of movies. It had nothing to do with Secret Movie Club. That's right. He's still going to transfer it and blame it on me. Still. So. In the end, it's Craig. All right, man. Edwin, have a good day. See you oh. soon. See you Thursday. Cool. See you. Peace uh, out. Uh, 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 okay, God. that should be his sign off going forward i want to make a short film where through some antics edwin becomes responsible for the nuclear football for some reason and then he has to make a decision and that's what we're going to hear sometimes watching edwin exist is like i was like watching rick and morty by the way secret movie club audience i just in defense of edwin not that he needs defense because everyone loves him and he's an institution edwin loves films so anybody who feels like the guy who hates movies doesn't get edwin edwin's so passionate edwin's whole life is living, breathing, eating movies. It was a loving tribute to the man yelling. It wasn't like a super critical. Because when he loves something, and you also love it, it's a fun conversation. When he hates something, you can hear it at the back of the line. To be fair, I think Edwin loves movies as much as he also hates other movies. And there's a balance, and I think <laughs> there are definitely times where the balance tips in one direction. The first Evil Dead movies are my favorite movies of all time. Um... I really love this new one. It's really good. Obviously, it's not as good as those first two, because then I'd be saying it's my like new favorite movie of all time. It was cool seeing it at the premiere. They had a good Q&A after with the director and the two leads. I was kind of whatever on the one from 10 years ago, because I thought pacing-wise it was a little all over the place, and tone-wise it was a little too serious. And this had more of like, not funny-funny necessarily, but that kind of weird slapstick sense of horror that the original has having fun with it in a way and yeah I, I really liked it no I agree I also really liked it I think if Evil Dead is going to drop in it's like this sort of soft reboot every 10 years it's one of the better franchises to do it I think having just the core of like you find a book stuff goes down as the base works if that's how they want to pull it I think it's really fun to watch sort of these people do it up and Evil Dead Rise is, is real nasty very goopy if you like the goop stuff I watched it with Brian and I had a, had a candy that I'd gotten and I forgot I forgot to eat it because by the time the things start happening in the movie, it was like the movie was over, like in a good way, in a way I want with an Evil Dead movie. One of the best title drops, too. Alyssa Sutherland, the main Deadite performance. She's yeah phenomenal. In the Q&A with her, she talked about how that she watched Jim Carrey's The Mask for mm. inspiration of sort of this like unhinged, very physical. And you can sort of tell when you to revisit it with that. And then uh, a secondary side note, I also Googled Michael Mann looking up that Ferrari fact, but Heat 2 is happening. The book he wrote is going to become a movie and Adam Driver is starring as the younger version of Robert <laughs> De Niro. So once again, Driver coming in hot. And you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash This was the day we're recording it uh, was the day that Joe Biden announced uh, he, he not that there was any mystery, but that he's uh, running for reelection. And I've been taking notes recently for when we do pods just so that I don't punt. And I actually talk about something that's on my mind. One of the things that's been interesting to me about the developments of the last month or two in the world, and I also like the idea of the podcast being maybe a little journal or blog of current events, if people ever listen to these or discover them later on. If you had asked pundits and handicappers two months ago who the hot GOP possible candidate for 2024 was, they would have said Ron DeSantis. And I even did, if you listen to a pod about a month or two ago, I even kind of went off on DeSantis and my my worry and concern. And that hasn't gone away. I, I think Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is still a very viable presidential candidate and very well may get the nomination. I don't. But I would have said that the Republican Party was maybe moving away from Donald Trump a little bit and getting a little sort of tired of the antics. And then when Trump was indicted in New York by the the district attorney in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, suddenly there was this rallying effect. And now Donald Trump appears much stronger than he did two months ago. And all I mean by all of that is not actually to opine politically about this or that, but it was a reminder to me that you really never know what's going to happen. 
where, where who's going to come up, who's going to come down, and what events in the world are going to change or shape things. And there's always something that no one saw coming that happens or pops up that becomes the driver that no one had their eye on. It's almost never the thing we all predict will be the thing. It's always like, oh, this chat GBT thing, no one was ready for that. And now suddenly there's AI. I don't know if you guys heard about the AI Drake song, Hard on Your Sleeve. Has anyone heard this? And now suddenly someone used AI to literally write a hit Drake song and Drake and the whole music industry freaked out uh, that it happened. So I've just been humbled in the last month or so to be like, right, it's never the thing you think. You might have ideas or theories, but things are going to happen. No one could have seen coming. And I just feel like be humble because I think we're going to see a lot more of those things. I just don't know how you react to them, but it's probably in how you deal with those things that actually define your character in life. Not your predictions of what you thought was going to happen, but what really does start happening. So that's on my mind. I feel like those things are actually happening a lot more often now. I mean, if you, even if you look at like COVID, like who could have predicted that? George W. Bush. Did he predicted it? He was very concerned about it when he was in office. That's actually not a joke. There was like a book. He was obsessed with it that like a new plague was going to happen. Oh, wow. Well, and to his credit, he would have been an astute student of history because these things happen about every 100, 150 years. So it's always going to happen. But totally, if you had asked me February 10th, AJ, February 10th, 2020, I would have been, I mean, I joke about it all the time. Connor and I were like, maybe this thing will last until the summer. Yeah. <laughs> Cut to 18 months later. Um, all right, guys. Thank you so much. As always, this episode was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. Secret Movie Club Podcast 150 will be about Bill and Ted's bogus journey, a movie I love, and sequels that are better than the original. Although, you know, there's a lot of debate about bogus journey, as there is with a lot of sequels, and we're going to get into all of that. AJ is going to rejoin us, and we're going to have special guest Ann Morton Snagno on that. As always, you can find out everything we're doing at Secret Movie club.com get tickets at eventbrite write us a community at secretmovieclub.com or get in your car right now and drive out to palm springs and party with us and some 70 millimeter we'd love to have you thank you guys for a wonderful conversation as always aj thank you for joining us yeah thanks for having me for the conversation and have a great week guys bye guys i love you family By the way, you and I and uh, Alex are going to do a defend this movie on cruising. <gasps> yes, it's coming up. All right. Guess what? I'm bringing my poster, my tape, and my lobby car. I'm going to show it in your f***ing face. See, I got him excited about recording again. It's a podcast. There's no video element. I don't care, motherfuckers. Edwin's like just Edwin's ability to illustratively talk is getting like Balzac, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky level. Your vocabulary just continues to paint portraits that most of us can't paint. He comes from the Mark Wahlberg school of acting. <laughs> <laughs>